0: You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes, and listener discretion is advised. This is Jane,
1: and today I'm going to be speaking to Damon Martin. Damon is based in New South Wales and works for an organisation called International Social Services as the Deputy CEO and also the manager of New South Wales-funded services. International Social Services Australia provides social work, legal and mediation services to families and children across international borders. This includes assistance for families experiencing international parental child abduction facilitating international kinship care and other international child welfare matters. This includes intercountry adoption and family tracing, reunification and mediation. ISS Australia is an independent arm of a broader network which spans over 130 countries worldwide. They receive government funding for some services but rely on fees, donations and other income to continue providing the full range of services. Welcome to the podcast, Damon.
2: Thanks, Jane, and thanks for having me on the Jigsaw podcast.
1: You are very welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, We've we've just had an episode recently where Joe has spoken to an adoptee that was airlifted to Australia from Vietnam as a part of Operation Babylift. Um, So we thought it would be a good time to have a chat to you about the services that ISS offers. Um, so I'm wondering if, if firstly you could just tell us a little bit more about your role and I guess what assistance ISS can offer to adoptees and family members impacted by intercountry adoption.
2: Sure, Jane. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm currently the Deputy CEO of International Social Service Australia, which we'll is called ISS. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been there for nearly um, 13 years, so I've been around a lot wow. of um, post-adoption Work. That also includes inter-country adoption. So
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, I was on the National Inter-Country Adoption Advisory Group, which was an advisory group to the Attorney General's Department. I was the New South Wales rep. I've also been the longest-standing executive member on the New South Wales Committee on Adoption and Permanent Care. So that's involved mm-hmm. uh, that's adoption professionals in New South Wales, but also other parties, individuals um, interested or affected by adoption. So, yep.
1: Your influence is bigger than just intercountry country adoption. You're sort of yeah. involved in some of these other groups.
2: Yeah, and my, yeah. my interest in inter has kind of evolved over the years, just getting in touch with more and more inter-country adoptees that have been seeking our support. Um, I should probably first by start, you know, stating my position on mm-hmm. inter-country adoption. Um, first and foremost, inter-country adoption must be a service for children, which is focused on the needs and best interests of individual children mm-hmm. um, look also we strongly support the principle of subsidiarity which is basically meaning that intercountry adoption can only be considered as a last resort that's once all other family and other alternative care options this includes kinship care foster care and local adoption mm-hmm. have been exhausted in, a, in the in the child's home country. And intercountry country adoptees should be placed with families who will support and promote the adoptees' cultural identity and background. Now, that's really important. And that's done really well this day and age. But, you know, going back to when you were mentioning Operation mm. Baby Lift in mm. Vietnam, things were operated a bit differently. Perspective yeah. adoptees were um, – prospective adoptive parents were – probably weren't educated as much around the importance of cultural identity.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that was really kind of quite early days for inter-country adoption, wasn't it? Yeah. The Vietnam War. Yeah.
2: So we don't facilitate intercountry country adoptions. Uh, we help intercountry country adoptees, uh, you know, trace, take them on their post-adoption journey about information, identity, culture and reunification. Um, we think there's about, well, there's over 10,000 intercountry adoptees in Australia. And many of them will have a have a strong desire to connect with their country of origin and learn about um, or reunite with their birth family at some stage in their life. And we strongly believe that country adoptees should have the right to access specialised government-funded supports across their lifespan and especially when they embark on emotional and complex journeys to access their overseas records and reconnect with their biological family. Uh, We're pretty fortunate to have New South Wales government funding for what we call IPATS, which is the uh, International Post-Adoption Tracing Service. So that's a service that uh, supports any New South Wales person that's affected by adoption where their search involves another party overseas. So it can be an Australian local adoptee that's searching for their family, um, birth family, biological family overseas, or it could be um, a New Zealand or English adoptee living here searching mm-hmm. for their family overseas, or it could mm-hmm. be an intercountry adoptee living here searching for their biological family overseas. Um, we only get this funding in New South Wales so it's a free mm-hmm. service. Yep. we also were involved in uh, the intercountry family separation support service, which was jointly provided with LifeWorks, which is now Relationship Matters. Uh, that provided um, more localised support. We provided the um, what we called the information and support aspect of that, which was um, basically providing um, practical and emotional support to families that have adopted uh, children from overseas. It didn't have any real aspects of um, tracing or supporting tracing overseas. And then in uh, September 2016, we launched a DSS funded, uh, it was called the Intercountry Adoption Tracing and Reunification Service. So this was a specialised tracing service, national free tracing service for intercountry adoptees here in Australia, helping them access their records and search for um, biological family overseas. So um It was amazing to get this funding and launch this first of its kind service mm. in Australia. Uh, unfortunately, it was only we only got one year funding and then we got another year funding, so it was only mm. a brief period of operation um yep. less than two years. Mm-hmm. but with like little service promotion, we got um over two hundred and forty clients so it just wow. sort of showed the need that they want support to access um, records overseas and find their family. And amazingly, we located um, 55 biological families overseas wow. and facilitated 28 family reunions. So mm-hmm. um, that's quite remarkable considering the complexities mm. of um, accessing records overseas and finding families. So yeah, yeah we're sure. really proud of that. So um, and that's not funded now. So that's a real mm. gap I see.
1: Yeah, and it's certainly a gap for us when we're when we have people contact us. Um, that are affected by intercountry adoption and we sort of have to say to them, look, there isn't a funded service at the moment unless you're in New South Wales. Um, I think I have a feeling, uh, People can can people pay for a service, Damon, um, for your assistance? Or how does that work at the moment if they don't fall within that funded service?
2: Well, the issue is that when we mm-hmm. did have that two-year service, we established yeah. a lot of really strong links with searches mm. overseas. We're part of an international network members around the world but a lot of our members in the countries where Australia um, has adoption programs or previously adopted adopted um, children from um, we our networks weren't so strong so we had to forge new relationships with um, Mm. searching partners and we had to pay them and get them to do the actual on the ground case Mm. work, like go out to the villages put up posters uh you know like art Access records, so it was really on the ground social work, and we actually we're losing those links now because we just can't afford Aww. to pay for them anymore. Yeah,
1: wow, that's tricky. Very tricky, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, the other thing I was going to mention
2: too, when we had that funding, is we, we, we yeah. were able to um, produce a book called "The Color of Time." Um, mm-hmm. It's a collection. It was done um, in collaboration with Lynelle Long, who's from Intercountry Adoptee Voices and the Benevolent Society, and it's a collection of um, stories of Australian inter-country adoptees. So I think anyone that's, um, any family that's listening that have adopted a child from overseas, um, this book is a really great resource because it's just giving you, um, you know, stories of different adoptees of different ages and different eras and different countries and their experiences, so it's a really um, informative read.
1: Absolutely, we'll post a link to that in our po- podcast notes um, because I have had a look at that and it's a great book and a great resource, um, probably for adult adoptees as well. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, Damon, um, in our last episode, as I mentioned before, we uh, we did interview somebody who was a part of Operation Baby Lift. Now, I'm just wondering, you know, over your 13 years that you've mentioned, have you had any experience in assisting anybody from that era because from what I've read about it there are there is limited information available to adoptees because of all of the circumstances at the time and I and you know I wondered firstly if you'd had that experience and secondly even if you haven't where would you suggest an adoptee could start if they didn't have much information um, I guess about their family of origin
2: yeah, thanks, Jane. Um, look, we we dealt with a number of Operation Baby Lift inter-country adoptees when we delivered the inter-country adoption tracing service, um, and there were some huge challenges over there. We were fortunate mm-hmm. to engage a uh, Australian inter-country adoptee who now lives in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and she was able to be our searching um, support over there. And mm-hmm. so she was excellent. Like She lived and spoke Vietnamese, but she also was adopted here to Australia mm. so she had real understandings of the issues and That's could really great. connect with the um, the adoptees so um, she was um, unbelievable in terms of what she could do but there were some huge challenges in terms okay. of just accessing records you need to um, you know pay the government official to get access to the records um, you have to go out to the villages you have to put up um, you know posters or flyers saying wow. you're looking for this person stuff we wouldn't Dream of doing in Australia, yes. yeah. but that's how searching is conducted on the ground in those sort of developing countries. Now, look, we I think for the clients that we did have, um, I don't know if there was any family reunions, but, you know, you've mm. got to take little outcomes as they come. You know, there were some yep. clients that got, um, you know, their family registration um, certificate or they got their um, baptism certificate that had their mm. true date of birth now that's um for them that that's like gold you know that's just a piece of information that really just helps them sort of understand their early early life so
0: yeah
1: yeah, that was amazing yep
2: um we also just i'll tell a little story we had this um this client i'll call her annie um and she was born in vietnam in 68 Mm -hmm. um she was born with a condition that led to her blindness so she was abandoned Mm. outside an orphanage she was four when she came to Australia. Um, and she came just before baby lift. So she's, you know, not on the baby mm. lift plane, but she's mm-hmm. just before that. Yeah. Look at a nun, an Australian nun that was over there made it her mission to rescue Annie, fly yeah. her to New fly her to Sydney to treat mm-hmm. her um, her eye condition. But then once it was too late to doctors realise here it was too late to save um, Annie's eyesight, mm-hmm. um the Vietnam War had reached its climax, and it just was too dangerous for for any to return. So she was yep. enrolled as a as a boarder here in a school for visually impaired in Sydney. Wow! And on holiday she was shuffled, and weekend she was shuffled between lots of different foster families. She mm-hmm. she experienced up to twenty different foster placements, and and some of them were quite brutal, to be honest. So yeah. she didn't have a good experience. Um, she did have one. Um. Good experience with a foster parent, and mm-hmm. one this foster parent decided that she would adopt um, Annie mm-hmm. and um, this was a good placement for her she she enjoyed it and she felt safe in it. however, her adopted mother died five le- five oh, years okay. after the adoption nice. yeah so some real trauma for Annie mm-hmm. um, we actually started working with Annie and we um, were able to um, there was a Vietnamese documentary that wanted to it was sort of like find my family in Vietnam They wanted to okay. do a story on Annie and bring her back to Vietnam. And because she was blind, um, she needed support. So one of our social workers traveled with her to mm-hmm. Vietnam and took her on this journey where they went back to the, um, to the orphanage and she met the nuns that used to look after her. Um, She was one that actually found her baptism certificate and worked out her real date of birth. So that was something that was done over there, too. Um, Look, she hasn't found her family, and Mm -hmm. that search just keeps on going. But it just shows, you know, that whole experience was life-changing for her. It was something that actually, you know, gave her some hope and some dreams to go, get back to her culture, feel connected, be supported. So I think that sort of gives you an idea, you know, like this hasn't been... The wonderful experience for her in Australia, but mm. it has been an opportunity to, for her to go back, be around her people, learn yep. a bit more of her culture. You know, she doesn't speak the language, you know, it's really difficult. Mm. Mm.
1: I see what you're saying. There's that other cultural layer, isn't there? So even when people aren't able to necessarily find their family, there are other steps um, that can help them to reconnect with their yeah. culture,
2: country. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it might be for some that they don't actually—they just want to go there and actually yeah. be around, be in the be in the in the environment where they were where they were born. So they can sort of, Yeah. they can smell and they can eat and they can hear the voices of the language where that they come from. And that, for some, is as good as you know mm. finding family. That's part of their journey. Part
1: of, yeah, yep. Yeah, I'm starting to get, you know, an inkling of how complex that would be. Um, so I wonder, you know, moving forward from Operation Baby Lift, which was really, um, from what I've read, the, really the quite early days of intercountry adoption. And these days um, and over the years, Australia has had many connections with, you know, various overseas countries and various adoption programs. And I guess that's state by state as well. But um yeah. could you tell us some of the common countries that you liaise with um, these days when you're assisting adoptees on their search journey and are there typical avenues and strategies you use or does it really depend on the country?
2: Yeah um look probably start with probably the, the most positive and yeah. um, and biggest country is South Korea uh, okay. South Korea has had Australia's had a very long and um, big program of South Korea. And South Korea is a bit unusual in terms of what we call a ascending country because it's a really developed um, Asian country. And I suppose I think that my view is um, they sort of practice adoption similar to probably how we did in Australia in that forced adoption era. There's a lot of um, coercion and society pressure on um, unmarried mothers, to not keep their children, hence why there's a, is a big adoption program. But in saying that, there's actually quite a good um, post-adoption system in terms of um, getting records, finding the, the foster parents and having contact with the foster parents that look after you and then finding your biological family. Uh, we employed a woman by the name of Sue Park. She now works for, or she has worked for many years for the Post-Adoption Support Service. It's a Relationships Australia service in Adelaide.
1: She is yeah, okay. Korean yep. <laughs> okay. and she speaks
2: Korean and she liaises with the parties um, the post adoption service over there in Korean. And yeah. although each state and territory here in Australia can do that, they just can't do it as efficiently as mm. Sioux Park. And so she wow. was able to get some amazing outcomes for our South Korean uh, clients. I'll give you an example. Like, you know, we might have a New South Wales adoptee that had gone to the New South Wales government for their adoption records so they can trace family in South Korea and they'll send that information over there and it can take, you know, years because a it's not a priority for their dealing with all adoptions in New South Wales, not just into country adoptees. And they don't have a connection and they don't speak Korean to them. And then they came to us and within months, just through Sue, um, she was able to get some traction on this case and, find the family for this adoptee which is mm. so there was many many South Korean cases where yeah. uh, that was a really good um, family reunions occur or connections to their the foster family that looked after them for their first period of their life. Yeah. So Korea is a really positive one uh, probably nearly yep. sort of similar as uh, sorry is Taiwan. Okay. Taiwan's had a lot of uh, um, a lot of adoptions occurred to Australia over the years um, some were, we know, were um, illicit or illegal adoptions. We know that, mm-hmm. that um, there's a woman by the name of Julie Chu who facilitated a number of adoptions, I think sort of in the 20s to mm-hmm. maybe 28 adoptions to Australia. She was jailed in Taiwan for um, corruption and illegal, you know, buying buying children, mm-hmm. um, stealing children. So horrific, horrific uh, mm-hmm. practice. But yep. there's also been a number of... Um, other adoptions that have occurred, and they've got good systems in place to actually okay. uh, trace the family and okay. um, connect that. But then you're dealing with all the, like you've mentioned, um, mm-hmm. Vietnam, and Vietnam, mm-hmm. like really, you know, that's Operation Baby Babylift really kick-started inter-country mm-hmm. adoption in Australia, and mm-hmm. you know, can imagine there was something like 280 children on those mm-hmm. Qantas flights coming okay. out they probably had no, you know, legitimate documentation. Yeah. And searching for their family is very very difficult and yeah. really challenging. Thought the it likes might be. Yeah, the likes <laughs> of China too. China, mm-hmm. you can imagine one child policy, mm. lots of lots of um young girls. Um obviously in Chinese culture having a having a son is, you know, really important mm-hmm. for their uh, for the parents, so lots of girls that are abandoned and mm-hmm. then placed for adoption. So when you're abandoned, you you know you don't have any details of mm. who is who is your biological parents, what is your real yeah. name, what is your birth date, all those issues. So when we're tracing in China, when you haven't even got a a name or you know who you're searching for, it's you know incredibly challenging. So you're doing different things like. You know, going out to the spot where the child was found, mm-hmm. um, you might pick the, the worker that we were using. there might pick up a rock from that that spot, mm-hmm. take some photos, some um, information about yeah. that little area, put it together in a nice little Chinese sort of box and send that to the family, because that's part of that child, what we call life story work. This is something yeah. about they might put up some flyers, too, to say, look, where this child was abandoned on this this date on this um, this time just to give that child some hope there is some searching going on but as you can yeah. imagine the likelihood of finding that family yeah. is incredibly difficult oh dear um, yeah
1: absolutely but it Ethiopia, is here yeah. yeah go ahead sorry it's
2: right um, Ethiopia big program with Australia too number of Ethiopian mm-hmm. children come here so we're dealing with a lot of um, Ethiopian cases um, Probably more, more an oral um, history in terms of their, their record-keeping might have been somewhat poor.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so some real challenges over there. But we did engage a worker who was um, involved in facilitating the adoptions here to Australia. So he had a lot of knowledge of how things worked and was able to go out to those old orphanages. And um, we actually surprisingly had some quite amazing um results in Ethiopia mm-hmm. with family reunions even occurring. So yep. um, that was quite astounding for, the, for that country. India is a huge challenge, um, mm-hmm. not only because um, they actually have legislation in India that prohibits third-party searching. So it basically means using like an intermediary or someone like an ISS rep to actually conduct the searching in mm-hmm. Australia, I mean in India. So um Look, there's huge issues there. There's a lot, again, but like Taiwan, there's been orphanages that um, staff members have gone to jail for being involved in corrupt, illegal practices. Um, And they were children that were adopted to Australia. So India, we had just even access records, um, was hugely challenging.
1: Wow. Sorry, were you saying, just to clarify with India, are they saying, they're mandating that there does have to be an intermediary? No, they're, mand- they, they're basically,
2: yep. they're sort of really in the dark. They're, they're, their level of protecting the privacy, I oh. suppose, is so high that they don't yep. even allow searching. They don't oh. even allow okay. a, a, someone like coming in and actually right. um, trying to search on behalf of an adoptee in Australia oh. for the family. Yep. So
1: okay. that's a
2: huge challenge.
1: And is that because there, yeah, as you say, it's privacy concerns and it's just the um, the culture in that country around yeah. those practices. Yeah, maybe? perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Yep. So it's very individual, country by country. Yeah, but I guess exactly. the thing is, you've got that knowledge, so that when someone comes to you saying, "I'm from this country," you at least know a little bit about how that how that can look and.
2: We yeah and we
1: point them, yeah
2: and we you know look we were pretty we were fairly new to it too, and we learned a lot yeah. in those two years we're still sure. learning, yeah. um but yeah, it was really about um just trying to get some knowledge look yeah. the other thing that there's the inter country community, the peers themselves have mm-hmm. um an unbelievable bank of knowledge, especially if you've mm-hmm. gone on that journey yourself, and they're really yeah. open to connecting with uh, other inter-country mm-hmm. adoptees and sharing so look I'd always suggest you know also finding another inter-country adoptee say yeah. if you're from the Philippines another yep. Filipino might have yep. done a search how did they do it but you know peer support is is invaluable but it's really mm-hmm. complimentary I think you still need some professional support along the yeah. way to navigate that it's an emo- as you know in just local adoption yeah it's an emotional yeah. roller coaster
1: It's hugely complex. And and that actually links into my next question, because, you know, I know how complex it is, even just at a domestic level, when you're dealing with the same country, Um, even when you're dealing state by state, there are differences. And it can be incredibly frustrating, even sometimes doing birth, deaths and marriage searches, when you don't know which state someone's ended up in. But when you've got that, you know, cultural barrier as well, and language barrier, it's not just the search that's complex, but if you do manage to find a family member, I guess I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how that can pan out when you've got a language and a cultural barrier. Um,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, that's why we always utilize local workers mm-hmm. in those countries to not only do the searches because they, you know, they understand the systems, the avenues, the tools, they understand the legislation, but they understand the, the cultural nuances to, um, that country uh, they can support the country um, the family members in their language over there so how we would work is we would be dealing directly we'd be supporting the intercountry adoptee here in Australia and liaising with our partner our member or our searching contact in that country overseas and then they would be liaising with the family member and trying to facilitate that chain of communication so for, for most cases um, there is a language well you know there's a language barrier in nearly all the cases, so it needs yeah. someone to be trans. Yeah, it's real issues that. So, how do you build a relationship mm-hmm. a really meaningful one where you can get really deep and have it mm-hmm. sort of ongoing when you have to communicate yes. through someone else all the time? So, yes. you know, that might work in the first few contacts, uh-huh. but going forward, how do you do that? I and, totally. um, that's sort of the, the challenges that they're navigating is if there is a you know, people might think, well, look, you know, the reunion or finding the family's the you know, that's the outcome. Well it's sort of the start of the mm, the next yep. stage and then you've yeah. got all these challenges too. And they they often think because the adoptee is from Australia or lives in Australia, mm-hmm. um, they're they're far more um well off and yep. they've got this sort of capacity to support and help mm. the family over there. And then there's those sort of those lines that really sort of um I suppose start to sort of cloud the relationship and how they yeah. can form that when they're being asked for financial contributions. Doctor parents yeah. would find that too if they're support. But intercountry adoptees as an old as an adult, you know, they'll have to navigate yeah. that as well, which is really difficult.
1: Yeah, and I've certainly heard stories um, like that. And I remember the first time I heard a story, you know, where I, I heard that this inter adoptee had been asked for money, I was quite horrified until I realised that that's actually a cultural norm in a way that if, if a child had grown up with their biological parents in another country and then they'd moved to Australia as an adult, that would be quite normal um, that they might support their family back at home
0: yeah. Um.
1: So in a way, it's it's kind of embracing saying, "Well, you are my child," <laughs> but yeah, for an yeah. adopted person that's grown up in Australia, where that is not um really the situation for many people, I, I imagine that could be very confronting. Um, yeah. So, yeah. and you've also
2: got the geographical challenges too. You know, you can you you might end up going there and meeting with them face to face, but how do you continue that relationship mm-hmm. building? Yeah. And you've got the language barriers. You're you're culturally not really understanding how how things work in that country and, and you you're then also trying to sort of build that when you come back. See, so yeah. You need to have to, you know, like any any relationship you've got to spend that that time to build mm-hmm. it and be around yep. that person. And geographically you're always gonna be challenged if they're in Ethiopia mm-hmm. and you're in Australia, how or they're in India. How are you yeah.
1: gonna
2: keep going back to your going and there yeah, they're unlikely to come here too. So it's yeah. really you going yeah. out there all the that time. That
1: makes sense. And I suppose when you go somewhere to visit someone, that's very different from living in the same city or country and seeing each other on, you know, yeah. sometimes maybe even significant days like birthdays or everyday things. Yeah. Um, it's a very different relationship to when you visit a country and maybe visit for a week or two and then go home again.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, There's actually a large... Go ahead. So, sorry, no. there's,
2: a, there's a large cohort of our uh, South Korean adoptees, mainly from America, but they, mm-hmm. they live in Seoul. They've gone back, okay. and yep. you know they might not have found their biological family, but they've decided mm-hmm. to go back and, uh, I suppose, embrace their South Korean culture, wow. learn the language, live, immerse in themselves in there, and they're, they're obviously very connected to one another because they're you know they share the same experiences. Mm. So yeah, there is a there is a lot fantastic. that have done that. Yeah. Mm.
1: I imagine learning the language and immersing yourself in that culture than if you did find your family or even if you didn't. It's a very different experience um, to what I just and, said where you're just visiting and popping in. Yeah, yeah. and that's
2: why I'd say for, language is so important. and mm. And, look, if you could do, you know, like we really promote – um, for adoptive parents to mm-hmm. give a child a really strong sense of their identity and culture mm-hmm. so they can feel really proud of that as they grow up. But yeah. also to really, um, I suppose, encourage maybe, you know, even not just even encourage, <laughs> um, maybe even make it compulsory that they do language. You know, there's a lot mm. of things, you know, like, yeah, um you know, you think of an Australian context where kids have to go to Greek school in the weekend yeah. or they have to go and learn the piano or whatever. But making them learn that language, they, you know, when they go back to that country mm. when they're older mm. and they're able to converse, even if they yeah. don't find their biological family, yeah. if they converse with the people of where they're from, yeah. that's just going to make the the connection a whole lot more meaningful. So definitely look, yeah. language is really important.
1: yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And are you, when you do assist people, um, when you do assist adoptees, does your, do you sort of stay involved afterwards? So let's say two years down the track and there are complexities in reunion, which there often are, um, would you still be available at that point, you know, to talk that through and, and yeah, look, at what point does that support stop, kind of stop? yeah and yeah. that's probably
2: it's like when is the when is the end of the journey and i don't think yeah. there's any end of the journey and look unfortunately for that service mm-hmm. um it was only funded for two years and look oh, yeah. we would struggle yeah. to if a client that we'd helped facilitate a family reunion came back to us now and said look we need support but we've you know we'd, we'd hope to try and help them but we haven't got the staff and the yeah. funding to continue doing yeah. it for our new south wales clients yes we for some of them and. Look, some of our cases are not intercountry adoptees. They're um, just facil- facilitating a, a reunion in an overseas country. We can remain involved for years in mm. terms of just giving them some guidance and support mm. as the as the issues get, get a, um, arise and they're really struggling.
1: So a lot comes back to funding, and I, I guess that's why it's important. <laughs> it's always important to have funded services, and to have a range of support, like you said, the professional, the peer.
2: Um,
1: And I guess we also need, and we find this with domestic adoptions, we need uh, local people because people live, not everyone lives in a city um, in Australia, and even local private practitioners, if people need that deeper sort of therapeutic counselling support. So I guess it shows how important it is to keep the networks going and, um, Make, you know, keep advocating for that support.
2: Totally. And look, and I, we, we, we strongly have done that. And look, you,
1: mm-hmm.
2: there, there's a, I would say there's a, there's a disparity between the support and funding available for local adoptees here in Australia mm-hmm. versus intercountry. Obviously, the mm-hmm. apology was um, um, landmark, and it was amazing yeah. in the sense of providing funding and yeah. support. Um so you have funded um NGOs through throughout the country that provide support to um, local adoptees, um biological family and helps of searching, um mm. just counselling, all those. But yep. when you're looking at inter-country adoptees, um it's it's very difficult, you know, like there's yeah. for instance, if you lived in uh I'll give you an example, say if you lived in Queensland, where you are, yep. Um, yep. if you went to the government and said to them, I'm an Ethiopian adoptee, mm-hmm. and I want to trace my family in Ethiopia, yep. uh, I don't know if they can do They don't have connections with Ethiopia mm-hmm. anymore, and they probably can't assist. Yeah, if you were South Korean, you could go yep. to your Queensland government, and they and they said they would help you. So right. it's it's not equitable, not even with different yeah. countries of in, um, inter-country sure. adoptees, yep. and um, – yeah, and in different states, it's going to be different yeah. as well. So, yeah. um, okay. there's some real, real challenges, and I think some real issues with that. And um, yeah. that's why we were, you know, we applauded the government when we were able to do this first of its kind. First in the world, I think, was wow. a, a funded service to actually support inter country adoptees and their families. And I yeah. should say, too, interestingly, nearly half our cases were mm-hmm. actually parents searching on behalf okay. of their inter country adopted child. So, that showed the a real shift in I suppose the education of uh adoptive parents and showing look, searching now is really important because it's important to my child's identity for their life story work. And if we wait and wait and wait, the records are gonna be harder and harder to get. And for the child to see that the parents are doing that for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really powerful. So yeah, you know, just thinking that it was all adult into country adoptee yep. searching, it wasn't
1: Wow, that's great to know. Yes. Yeah. Right, and you've been doing this for, as you said, thirteen years. Um, that you've been involved in the area. Um, I'm, I imagine there's been highs and lows over that time. What What has that journey been like for you personally, Damon?
2: Yeah, oh, probably. <laughs> I should say. I should say it, it. I should say it is a privilege to work in this space. It's been um, to help fat, um, adoptees into country, even local adoptees. Mm. Um, connect find information about their identity reunify with their family Um, it's life-changing for them so Mm -hmm. it actually it's a real privilege to be part of supporting them on that on that journey so there's been some massive highs and um, I suppose the one that's really sticking out to me is um, I had the opportunity to um, take a young Indian um, adoptee back to India to find her family. Now, it was a very similar scenario to um, the Lion movie, yet it oh, wasn't wow. filmed and it wasn't on camera. <laughs> so it was basically yep. similar. She came from Central India. She was adopted out to Australia um, as about, I think she was about 10, so she had mm-hmm. memories of her village. Wow. Um, and she knew where the village was. We were able to, um, again, similar to Lion, look at it on Google Earth, say, look, this is wow. where it is, this is the closest city. We yep. hired an Indian social worker, and I took her back there, and we actually um, we found her mum, which was oh, um, amazing. an amazing experience. It also yeah. came with real issues. as She yep. learned that her, her father had passed away, mm. her brother had passed away, mm. and the challenges have also been in terms of um, keeping that communication mm. with the mum. The mum doesn't have a phone. She doesn't write yep. letters um so it's a real challenge to keep that yeah. connection going but for for the adoptee to actually at least find her mum and yes. able to connect with her was and for me to be a part of that and see yeah see that, it was just something I will never forget and yeah. um it was that was life-changing so
1: it sounds life-changing for not just for her but for for you being involved as well
2: yeah so that's yeah. A, that was probably the real highs we also you know, there's there's lots of lows too, I should say, yeah. as well in terms of yeah. you know, there's ones that um, the the intercountry adoptee um, is illegally trafficked. We learn information yeah. that you know their um all their information's fraudulent, or mm-hmm. there's you know really quite yeah. horrific information that they've got to deal with from yeah. that country and and deal with it. Or there is the fact that they, you know. That there is just no avenues. There's no. Yeah. There's little hope, and yeah. um, and it just it really can. You've seen the movie Lie, You know it can yeah. obsess. They can be. Yes. Yeah. It becomes. It can take over their life. It's really, really important to them to actually find this information, and yeah. so it's that struggle of just dealing with your day to day life. When this is still really important, because I'm still trying to. Um, you know access information and find my family which i and some of them were adopted when they're older so they have some mm, memories so memory.
1: yeah
2: yeah
1: i think we might put a link to lion in our podcast notes for people yeah. who haven't seen it because it's just a good example of what you're talking about and the complexities because even in that movie even though there's a positive outcome we see um i forget the main character's name but we Saru, see his yeah. brother Saru. we see yeah. his brother who's also adopted that seems quite to have a different, lot of challenges, yeah, yep.
2: quite different experience, yep. isn't it? And it just and, shows yeah. same
1: yep
2: I suppose it shows, its a lot of go okay. go ahead there <laughs> no, you go no.
1: well, it shows you again, it just everything keeps highlighting the need for support um because we often hear in the media all the positive you know and all the advocacy that we should have more adoption and, and bring kids in from overseas, but what about this end, and where is the funding at this point to? support the huge complexities. Um and yeah, we're very lucky to have that funding um at the moment for the forced adoption support service and other state funded services, but I guess it's never guaranteed either. So yeah, it yeah. just the more we talk about it, I guess it highlights we have to keep it on the radar because it's it's all just incredibly complex. But adding that level with the intercountry, it's just it sounds even more important than ever. It's more profound,
2: yeah. And look, I think government probably looks at this, it's declining the numbers Mm -hmm. and they continue to decline. And so you look at the numbers coming in each year and maybe it's not recognised or prioritised in that respect. Mm -hmm. But when you look, and you know this, adoptions, you know, the issues around adoption, take it it covers your whole lifespan. So these are, you know, it might be a 40-year-old that's come out and, Operation baby lift that is just yeah. now going yep look my adoptive parents have passed away and i this is really important for me yeah. now I really want to see if I can you know focus some energy on doing a search and, and, I, and I would like support around that because I yep. don't even know where to start and what to do and I haven't even thought of the the range of outcomes that and you know, all the issues that I'm going to face along the way so having the yeah. peers having the professional counseling and support um, I think yep. is just really, it just has to happen. It's really invaluable.
1: Yeah. And do you know what? It can be the children of the adopted person as well. We're hearing exactly. more and more from children of adoptees that go, well, my, my mother or father never wanted to search because they've got the emotional level,
2: Yeah, but
1: the children often want to know their heritage. So yeah, exactly. it yeah. keeps going. Yeah,
2: it does. It does. So yeah, yeah.
1: Look,
2: it's uh, big issues. hmm.
1: Can I ask one final question, Damon? Um, you know, ancestry DNA and similar sites have become more and more common that people are using those as a searching avenue. But it really does depend um, where people are from because the people doing the tests are often, um, you know, might be from, in, a lot of them are in America, more and more Australians are doing it. Would that would that be a helpful avenue for an intercountry adoptee? Have you had cases where that has proven successful, or is it still early days with that? Um,
2: yeah, that's a good question. And look, um, there was a very good DNA article that I was speaking mm-hmm. on just recently, which we could put a link to. Um, it's not specifically about intercountry adoptees, mm-hmm. but it's around adoption. Look, mm-hmm. I think the DNA for intercountry adoptees, look. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard of any example where it's found biological family unless it's been, I think I have heard of examples when it's found a a sibling in a a country like America or something. But you've got to realize that if you put your DNA on ancestry of 23 and me, Mm. the likelihood that your biological family in India or Ethiopia have put their DNA on there is slim to none. Um, So Look, it might be good in terms of sort of, I suppose, confirming some ethnicity okay. um, around it. Might even find some extended family. I, I would. The price mm. has gone down remarkably, yeah. and I would, you know, still say it's worth a shot. Yeah. Um, actually, I did hear from our Korean expert um, saying that they they have a specific DNA hub that Koreans use. That's not okay. 23andMe um, or um ancestry and we could put that link on as well Mm -hmm. which koreans are used so that's the one that they're using so that would have more um likelihood of finding a family connection
1: yeah yeah
2: but look dna can do some you know the science around it it can do some quite amazing amazing things but i just don't like until the dna companies you know what i suggested in this media article was it'd be amazing if Ancestry went to India and like paid for all the mothers that had lost children to do free DNA swaps, so they they um yeah so they could have their DNA there and there would be an opportunity. But the fact is that they're never going to have you know like well not never but they're they're unlikely to have their DNA ever on databases like this. So they're likely sort of finding someone as yeah not going to
1: happen well maybe we should keep advocating for that because i think that's a genius idea maybe someone uh, would like to donate some money to do that
2: well i'm sure the dna companies are uh, making a lot yeah. of money and i think just sort of having a bit of a yeah, philanthropic a of ethics, sort of good yeah. and will and an ethical good will yeah. like to say, hey, let's do this and give back But that would be yeah. great
1: yeah well good idea um, we might finish up on that note, unless there's anything else um, that you haven't mentioned. That you
2: no, no, know. that's been it's been good talking to you, Jane, and good work Thank on the you. podcast. And, yeah, Thank look, I really you. have a, well, um, a good working relationship with Jigsaw and, yeah, we'll yeah. continue to have one as well.
1: well. That's right. I, you know, I do um, contact you from time to time because, as you mentioned earlier, there are cases even when it is an Australian adoption when another party may have moved overseas. So we really... Um, expertise in that area because it can get very easy to get stuck um, when there's an overseas connection yep. so keep up the good work and thank you for your time today damon
2: thanks jane all the best
0: thanks for listening to the adopt perspective podcast if you'd like to find out more go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313, or you can call Jigsaw on 07 3358 666. If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you are calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Jo Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption.